Andrew, that was amazing. You did such a good job. Both Andrews today. <laughs> well, good morning and happy Sabbath to all of you. It's good to see you. I'm glad you could join us for this special uh, Christmas service. The title for today's uh, message is Advent, Activism, Activism and Absolution. Now, for those of you who may not be so familiar with the word Advent, it simply means uh, presence, arrival, or official visit. And we are officially in the Advent season. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with um, some of the traditions of the other denominations, but this season holds a lot of significance and it's quite uh, important in Christianity. The season is often referred to as the Advent season, which officially starts four Sundays prior to Christmas. And so I want to actually share some of the Christmas traditions um, that uh, Christianity holds, and then I'll share um, just the significance that this story holds in the Bible. Um, many of you are familiar with the nativity scene, as this is something that's uh, really portrays the birth of Christ. Um, and at the beginning of Advent season, you'll see a lot of these nativity scenes popping up. And along next to these nativity scenes, you'll see something called the Advent wreath. Um, I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with the term Advent wreath? All right. And this is really interesting because Adventism, right? Like you would think, why don't we know about this? But uh, anyway, this is a real thing that holds a lot of tradition in the church. Uh, the Advent wreath traditionally is placed uh, on a table and it has four candles. And each of those candles symbolizes the Sundays that roll around. So each Sunday, they'll light one of the candles. And then um, on Christmas Day, the Advent wreath is kind of in full full flame, I guess. Um, how, many, how many of you are familiar with Christmas trees? Not to be confused with Christmas trees, but Christmas trees. All right, so this week I actually learned a lot about uh, Christmas tradition as well. But uh, Christmas trees are very different. Well, I shouldn't say very different. They are slightly different from traditional Christmas trees. And the big difference are the colors that are used. So Christmas trees uh, generally have clear silver or gold ornamentation and um, a lot of the monograms have to do with Jesus or the nativity scene, whereas Christmas trees are generally decorated. And so um, if you go to some of the um, mainstream evangelical churches, um, Christmas trees often decorate um, their, their um, places of worship. So this season is filled with um, different symbolism. And with the Christmas tree, I just I, I forgot, it's always an evergreen tree because the evergreen tree represents the everlasting uh, grace of God um, and the everlasting power of God. And um, anyway, this season, the evangelical church starts its liturgical calendar. And that means this season is filled with fasting. It's filled with devotions. And uh, I think it was mentioned before that uh, our friend Celia Kemp has put together a devotional app. Um, and so, um, yeah, this is something that's quite important. Now, within Adventism, Adventists generally don't have a whole lot of 
Christmas traditions um, outside of having a special church service. And of course, here in Victoria, we have a live nativity scene called the Road to Bethlehem. And uh, every year, there are about 15,000 people throughout Victoria that attend this live nativity scene. It is the most well-attended event that the Adventist Church puts on for the community. And so um, if you weren't able to make it this year, next year, the first week of December, they'll run uh, Road to Bethlehem again. So today, in the spirit of Christmas, I want to read through the intro story to the birth of Jesus and share about the significance that's held in Scripture and um, what it means for us as Adventists to remember the advent of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 to 23. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 to 23. And keep your hand in this passage because I'll be referring back to it uh, throughout the message for today. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23 reads, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, she was still a virgin. She became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In this passage, there are three ideas that I want to spend time on this morning. The idea of Advent, the appearing of Christ, Activism, the call to change or reform, and absolution, this idea of forgiveness. This passage contains all three of these elements. And the main point of this passage is to say that there was a prophecy that is fulfilled by Jesus Christ that would bring about this advent, activism, and absolution. Throughout the Bible, God has this desire to spend time with his creation. He has this desire to spend time with people. And if you think back on the beginnings of scripture, in Genesis, the Bible portrays this picture of Adam and Eve having face-to-face communion, face-to-face contact with God. But we know Adam and Eve eat the fruit um, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and humanity becomes selfish, and God can no longer have this face-to-face communion with his people. There's a sad reality that when selfish people have access to an omnipotent God, it really makes the relationship with God quite complex. And as a result, God has to distance himself from his creation. And for the remainder of scriptures, God is trying to reach out and once again experience that intimate communion that he once had with his people. If you turn to Exodus chapter, or if you look at Exodus chapter 25 verse 8, God tells Moses to build him a home 
a place where people can see and know that he is God. The passage says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. This sanctuary was also called the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40, verses 36 to 38, it gives a little bit more information or a little bit more imagery of what this actually looked like. It says, now whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. But if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the cloud, so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. Can you imagine what it's like to be an Israelite? Someone who would basically be born in an environment where they would never ask the question, is God real? Because they would just look at the middle of the campsite where there's this massive uh, tent, if you will, or this tabernacle, and they would see this supernatural cloud. And during the day when God would say, okay, it's time to move on to the next uh, next destination, this cloud would just continue moving on. Israel would then pack their things and follow this cloud until it would stay stationary. And every night they would kind of look at the cloud and... How many of you have been to uh, um, the Crown Casino where the flames go up at night? You know, it's like 9 o'clock. It's like, oh, I remember the first time we were in Melbourne, 8.56. My friends were like, hurry up. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Can you imagine? I don't know what time the cloud went from cloud to fire, but I would imagine as a young kid, that would be kind of like a highlight of the night. Like, all right, the cloud's going to catch on fire. You go out, it's just like, And that's basically what the Israelites experienced every single day for 40 years. And the reason why God does this is because he wants his people to know, I am here. I want to be with you. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God reveals himself through prophets. God gave these special revelations to holy people. And in turn, those people would communicate the will and uh, the character and uh, the, the prophecies that God would give or had for his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, it says, Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go see, uh, let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now is formerly called a seer. So if anybody wants to know, hey God, I have a question. I want to know something about you. I want to know something about um, the, the state of the nation. I have questions. They would go to the seer or the prophet, and the prophet would communicate. So once again, God is doing all he can to try and connect with his people. But, you know, with each of these methods of communication, there are limitations. When it came to the sanctuary, it's not like any Israel could walk into the tabernacle and say, Hey, God. I just want to have a talk. I just want to have a chat with you because the rule stipulated if you step in the tabernacle, it's so holy. Anybody who stepped in who wasn't supposed to step in would immediately perish. Now, you can imagine that would create a serious barrier between somebody having an intimate relationship with God. And so there were limitations to the sanctuary. And in the New Testament, the author Paul writes about this limitation and he uses the word a veil. There's this veil that separates God from the people. And so there's this incredible challenge that God is faced with. And even with, even with prophets, it's not like you can spend every single day and every waking moment talking to a prophet because the prophet is a barrier between God and yourself. You are getting 
someone else's communication of what God wants for your personal life. So how does God get rid of these limitations? If you look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and we read through the passage. But in verse 22 and 23, it says that God sends Jesus, and his name is Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. And what happens is God removes that veil. He removes that prophet, that person who's in between himself and his people. And for the first time since creation, man can interact with God and get to know who he is firsthand. The advent or the appearing of Christ provides hope. And God wanted to communicate that the love of God has the power to break through the failures and the selfishness of humanity. If you look at verse 21, notice what happens as a result of the advent or the arrival of Christ. The passage says that God would save his people from their sins. This verse communicates two things. The first thing that it communicates is that God desires to reconcile. God desires to reconcile. Even though humanity is selfish, even though humanity is sinful, God breaks that barrier and says, I want to be with you. The second thing that the verse communicates is God's power to change. Notice the text doesn't say God will save his people in their sins. It says God would save his people from their sins. And so there's this idea of reform, this idea of change, and that's where that word activism comes from. Not literally, but just how I'm using it in the sermon. <laughs> so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 states that change and love, they cannot be separated. Those two things go hand in hand. It highlights God's goodness and his desire to forgive. It highlights God's power and our need to change. So how are we to act as a result? How do we receive this gift? You know, when you try to practically apply the idea of reconciliation and change, it can be quite challenging, and this is what I mean. Forgiveness can almost seem like a carrot that's dangled in front of us, right? You've got to perform. You've got to do good if you want to experience forgiveness. And so it's kind of like, well, what if I can't perform? What if I can't do the right thing? What if I struggle with the same thing over and over and over and over again? Well, then am I still forgiven? And it almost feels like we're stuck in this this contract, this binding contract that has has eternal consequences. Forgiveness can sometimes be a challenge. If we don't change, then what? But what I want to highlight here is that when the relationship focuses on us, it becomes complicated. It becomes about our performance. Am I doing good enough? What about now? Hey, I made it to Sabbath school on time. I made it to church on time. And I said, happy Sabbath to everybody. So like, whew, Saturday, good to go, right? And then the the moments where you're not able to tick all the boxes, then there's this kind of sense of like, I haven't done enough. It gets complicated when the focus is about our performance. It can also be about whether or not we're we're still in the good books. It's like, is God's grace enough to save me? Have I gone too far? Or what else can I get away with? Right? When the focus is on ourselves, the relationship becomes complicated. But when the relationship is about God, then it places this verse in context. And this is what I mean. 
when we focus on God, then it focuses on the unending mercy that he provides. When we focus on God, it's about, God, what can I do for you because I love you? What can I do because I love you? Not because I feel like I have to prove something. Not because I feel like I have to earn a status. In John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus gives this profound quote. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's this promise where Jesus says, anybody can experience his presence. It wasn't just the Israelites that could encounter Jesus firsthand. It wasn't just Adam and Eve who could encounter God in the Garden of Eden firsthand. But Jesus gives this promise. Each and every person who follows this formula, he will reveal himself. And the two elements of that formula are a willingness to see God's love. The fact that he is a loving God. It's giving God the benefit of the doubt and then trusting his ways. He says, you do those two things, I will reveal myself to you. There's another passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And it communicates a similar idea. This idea of reconciliation and reformation. Hebrews 2, verse 17, verse 18 says, Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So notice here, it says, Jesus became human, experienced the difficulties of what it's like to walk on earth for 33 and a half years. And because he understands us, he's able to give mercy. So when we say, Jesus, it's so difficult. Like the family that I grew up in, the circumstances that I grew up in, the challenges that I faced with my own deficiencies. And Jesus says, I get that. And that's why I'm able to give you mercy. And at the same time, at the last bit of this verse, it says, so he's able to help those who are tempted. And what it's communicating is Jesus is saying, I know what it's like to have that challenge. And here's my solution. Trust in me. Looking at this idea in the context of a relationship focuses on the journey rather than the moment. There's this incredible story in the Bible of a man named David, and most of you would be familiar with him. King David was kind of the poster king of Israel. Out of all the kings of Israel, David is the one uh, the nation of Israel would look to and say, that's our guy. He's what made Israel this great nation. But when you read through the story of David, you really see how human and how, um, yeah, you just see how human he is. For example, when God allowed Israel to call a king, he wrote specific instructions to the kings. And one really important instruction was that they were, they were to live in monogamous relationships. And Israel lived in this time period where polygamy was a normal thing. And God communicates to the leader of Israel and says, hey, you're supposed to be different. So take one wife, be faithful to her, and be an example. David in his life, I believe, had nine different wives. And 
you would kind of Anyway, he had nine different wives, and the Bible also says that he had concubines, and this kind of bites him in the end. But it's kind of like he knows he's not supposed to do this. And, and one, one other thing is he's the second king of Israel. It's not like there were like a ton of kings. Like he was just – he got the instructions fresh off the press, right? He knew what he, he knew it was wrong, and he knew it was right. So he basically gets into this, uh, these polygamous relationships, and, and they really – affect his life there's a story of a woman named abigail and she has this unwise husband and david gets so angry that he almost murders her husband and uh what you find out in the story is that david's actually attracted to this woman named abigail and after her husband dies of natural causes then he ends up marrying abigail anyway it's kind of like yeah that's just weird there's another time period where there's a season where the kings are supposed to gather together and go out to battle. There's a season of fighting where all the borders of the different nations kind of get reset. And whoever wins the battle gets to dictate their own borders. David, knowing that it's time to go out to battle, kind of realizes, you know, I've kind of settled into my role. Israel's doing pretty good. My army's pretty strong. I'm going to stay at home. And so he decides to stay home. And what ends up happening is he has this commander named Uriah. And as he's looking out over his palace walls to the city, he sees Uriah's wife bathing on this rooftop. And the Bible says that he gazes upon her. Now, if David were truly this righteous king, he would kind of be like, oh, I probably shouldn't be up here. And then he'd go back and walk somewhere else. But what he does is he calls Bathsheba. He calls Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And he says, hey, come have dinner with me. Now, just... You know, the, the, the mental barriers that you have to cross over from, oh, I shouldn't be looking to, hey, to, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? There are a lot of mental ha- uh, barriers that you've got to cross, especially since he knows she's married to my commander. The story goes on. One thing leads to another, and Bathsheba conceives David's child. And David realizes, I'm in trouble because once Bathsheba's husband comes back from battle, he's going to wonder where this baby came from. And so David calls Uriah back from war early, and he says, hey, look, you're doing such a good job. Why don't you go home and spend time with your wife? Like, bonus, bonus perks for the commander. And Uriah, being this faithful soldier, says, how can I go enjoy myself when my men are fighting out in the battle? And so he lays down outside of the door of the palace, and he sleeps there. And David realizes, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? And so he sends this letter to Uriah, and he tells Uriah, you're going to be placed in the front lines, and in battle, Uriah dies. And so David, in this smooth, roundabout way, murders his commander, and then he goes and he marries his commander's wife. So just anyway, David was very, very human. But what you see after that moment is that when God addresses David's mistake, David repents And he says, God, I have made a mistake. And at the end, or or from that moment on, you really see David journeying with God in a different way. And that one moment, I would arguably say, ruined David's life. But when it came to his relationship with God, he just had such a strong hold on the grace of God that it completely transformed him. And he has this experience where uh, God basically says, David, you're a man after my own heart because you understand how this relationship works. 
See, we too are invited into this journey of faith. We become, we experience reconciliation, we experience transformation, and then we are to pass that on. We are to give reconciliation and instill reform in the communities around us. Those two things, change and forgiveness, are such a challenge to balance out. Sometimes it's easy to uh, prioritize the importance of change and lose sight of love. When there is not a commitment to love, change or transformation becomes temporary. See, change cannot be motivated by fear. Change cannot be forced. There's a man by the name of Muhammad Gandhi. And around 1927, he was trying to bring about this social change. Uh, India was colonized by um, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the British Empire. That's the right word. <laughs> I was like, it's not the UK. It's not England. The, the British Empire. And at that time, Gandhi made a decision I want to bring about social change so that we can experience freedom and independence. And he commits himself to these two things, nonviolence and reformation. And so he starts these nonviolent protests. And Muhammad Gandhi is probably one of the most well-known activists um, of, of the previous century. And it's quite incredible what he was able to accomplish. Muhammad Gandhi actually was able to facilitate the freedom that India experienced. Um, and, and this is very different from U.S. history because the Americans kind of said, we're just going to fight you. And then as a result, they kind of uh, experienced this revolution. Um, and many, many, many people died. But Gandhi experienced or was able to do something that was completely different. Now, what's interesting is that when India experienced this independence, there was a lot of religious tension mainly between uh, the Muslims and the Hindus. And so they decided to split these two nations, India and Pakistan. The Muslims would go to Pakistan and the Indians would, would stay, or the Hindus would stay in India. And what happened was, as people were moving geographically, a lot of religious tension kind of arose and rioting broke out. And there were almost a million people that died through that transition. And so Muhammad Gandhi looks at what happens, and he says, you know what? This is not right, and he puts himself into this fast. And at this point in time, he becomes this really famous political leader, and the people love him so much, and he basically doesn't eat any food, and after 30 days, people are like, if you don't eat something, you are going to die. Gandhi calls for this non for the violence to cease, and the violence did stop. And he facilitated, once again, peace in, in these two countries. Now, many of you know that Gandhi was murdered. Gandhi was seen as someone who saw all religions as equal, which is why he was able to facilitate that peace between the Muslims and the Hindus. But some of the people in his own country, in his own faith, were really upset and felt that he was too lenient, and they murdered Mon and, and six people organized the murder of Gandhi, and he was shot six times. Now, what's interesting to me is that his sons, recognizing what has happened, make a plea to the Prime Minister of India. And they know that the murderers of their father are going to be executed. And they specifically requested, can you lessen the punishment so that they don't get executed? Now, for me, it's pretty incredible that Gandhi's sons 
would go to their father's murderer and say, we forgive you. And they embodied that principle of reformation and at the same time, uh, an undying commitment to love and reconciliation. You know, when you, uh, when I read about the story of Gandhi, he had an incredible affinity to the teachings of Christianity. He, he didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And I want to be very clear with that. He didn't ever convert to Christianity, but he often said, Jesus is one of the most incredible teachers that the world has ever seen. And a lot of his, um, Practical applications of nonviolent protest came from the teachings of Jesus. And, you know, when he grew up, um, the early missionaries that converted many of the Indians were very abrasive in their approach. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, a lot of the socio uh, a lot of the sociological research that's done in missiology right now didn't exist back then. And so it was a lot of things like if you don't dress like us, if you don't talk like us, if you don't take on another name, then you aren't a real Christian. And and Gandhi grew up in this environment where he saw the misuse of the power of the missionaries. And he was really turned off from Christianity. And he basically thought, look, all of you Christians, you eat meat, you drink, you do all these hedonistic things, and then you tell us to give up our paganism. And so he was really frustrated with that. But what happened was, when he went to England, he met someone that he called a devout Christian. And that devout Christian went to uh, Gandhi and said, listen, I'm a vegetarian, I don't drink, please read the Bible. And Gandhi thought, what? And, and you know, when I first read this, I, I started Googling Gandhi and Adventism. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like us. And for me, I, I don't think it was. It turns out John Wesley believed in the same thing, so it was most likely a Methodist. But anyway, my point is this, that we have this message that crosses so many different barriers. And if we instill a message of reconciliation and change, you never know what could happen. Because the teachings of Scripture influenced Muhammad Gandhi who then influenced someone called Martin Luther King Jr. I want to talk about that second bit. Prioritizing love and disregarding the need for change. It's important. It is just as important to prioritize change as it is to prioritize love. It can be so uncomfortable to take a stand and rock the boat and call for change. The reality is that the world is broken and we are called to act. Jesus came to love, he came to forgive, he also came to uplift humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. was a political active, a political sociological uh, activist who created, who started or spearheaded the civil rights movement. In 1955, there's something called the Montgomery or the Montgomery bus boycott. And in 1955, there was a lady named Rosa Parks in the state of Alabama, and she was arrested for not giving up her seat in a public bus in violation of something called Jim Crow laws. As a result, Martin Luther King Jr. led the Montgomery bus boycotts. Back then, the African-American community made up a 75% of the demographics that used um, the public bus system. And so what would happen is, what happened was they decided, the African-American community decided to or organize carpools. Black taxi drivers lowered their fees to 10 cents a ride, which was the equivalent of one bus ride. 
there were white housewives who would give their black uh, domestic workers rides. And as a result, they started changing the economy of Montgomery. So city council responded to this act of nonviolent protest. They responded by pressuring insurance companies to drop the insurance policy of insurance policies of those who were giving carpool rides. They then contacted the taxi drivers and, and, and threatened to fine them if they wouldn't raise their rates back up to 45 cents per ride. This boycott went on for 381 days. And during that time, Martin Luther King's house was firebombed along with four other black churches. Can you imagine the, the discomfort of standing up for what's right? They would have had these conversations. You know we're going to die? Yeah, there's a good chance that we're going to die. Well, this is right, so we're going to stand up for it. A civil suit was taken to the district court as a result of these protests. The court ruled that racial discrimination on public transportation was unconstitutional, and the state appealed, uh, excuse me, the state appealed the ruling, and the case was taken up to the Supreme Court. And it was there that the Supreme Court agreed on the original ruling. State legislation changed. And in many ways, this was a victory. Because this gave a lot of energy to the civil rights movement. And as a result, the nation became more aware of racial inequality. There were different policies and legislation that changed as a result. And the civil rights movement gained momentum. It's incredible how legislation has changed over the last 60, 70 years in the U.S. But I want to highlight, if you just flick through different news articles, you can see that America is not free of racism. When you look at police brutality to the African-American communities, it's incredible the racial profiling that takes place. And my point is simply this. It takes a consistent effort to be willing to be reconciled to the community that is opposed to you. It takes a consistent commitment to change, to reformation, to create long-lasting change. And the reason why I bring up this topic is because we live in a country that may not experience the same kind of racial discrimination, but we live in a politically divided country. And this country is becoming more and more polarized. And I don't know if you've been reading about the upcoming um, federal elections that are going to take place. And when I read some of the news articles, I just kind of shake my head because religious liberty is becoming a topic um, in politics. And, and I just want to say, whatever your convictions are, I want to highlight the importance of unwavering love for your opposition and a commitment to community. A commitment to stand for what's right. That kind of love and that kind of commitment will bring about unity and bring about long-lasting change that's healthy for the community. In the next couple of years, I'm really curious to see how these discussions move forward. And I've kind of made this commitment to myself. There are going to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations that I'm probably going to have with different people. And it's forcing me to read to understand, to think through, and it's causing me to pray through God, teach me how to be the kind of person that Jesus was, to have that commitment to community. As you think about the advent of Christ, how it influences 
forgiveness, how it influences change. May God give you the wisdom to stand for what's right, and may God give you the strength to love those who oppose you. May God bless you as you consider his word.